There we go. Mem, water, chaos, mighty, blood. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Commands make me wiser than my enemies. They are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers. I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders. I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word, not departed from your Lord, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Good stuff. Burke, you had a comment on one of those? No, I already gave them to you. Oh, well, I didn't write them down because I was busy over at the thing. <laughs> All right. Well, that's okay. We'll go ahead and uh, read a couple things here. Burke had a couple good references on the. Uh... Oh, I got something here for you, Burke. Don't don't forget to come and get this from me, okay? okay. I forgot to give that to you. It's a little strange day for me. That was Jeremiah fourteen ten about they didn't check their feet and here. Oh, says, they didn't check their feet, and, and that's. Over here it says the, I... the, 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 my feet. I restrain my feet from every. From if yep yeah. yep okay that's good stuff there. Uh, yeah, the Bible always is consistent, always consistent what it says. Okay, I've got a prayer request from Ray and Jess over in Papua New Guinea. He says, I do have some pretty big prayer requests with all that is going on. It has limited my involvement in the community. This has two negative consequences. The first, it has set back my language learning as my interactions with people has been more limited. Second, there is a risk of losing our good standing with the local community and the government. People are suspicious of foreigners, and this kind of thing makes them more suspicious. He's talking about the virus. Mm -hmm. So far, our relationships seem to be okay, but it is a big prayer request that our organization can maintain that good standing as it helps us greatly in our church planning efforts. So we want to keep them in prayer because they spent their everything that they had in their life to go to college, to go to mission training school, to uh, take he, his wife, and their three children to Papua New Guinea, and uh, if they, you know, if something interferes with that, that's kind of troubling. So we would want to keep the Ray and Jess in uh, prayer. And then prayers for uh, a fr friend of mine. It's, he doesn't want his name said, but uh, uh, he wants his family to know Jesus. And also someone has a, a large cup, which he would ask to pass from him. That's a friend of mine as well. And so uh, we got those. And we got Mr. Magnuson, who I've not heard anything on this week. So uh, we'll keep him in prayer as well. And then we've got the list of people that uh, we've written down here for uh, salvation. We've got a whole list of them. And I'll just read two of them arbitrarily. Here's uh, Akemi says her son-in-law, Ila, And we'll go down some Stephen for his brother, Thomas. And then we've got a whole list of them here. But we'll pray for that list as well. And uh, uh, we'll go to the Lord in prayer first. And we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come in here and to meet and to uh, lift up the prayer requests that we've just read and any others that are unstated at this time. And we also certainly pray for each person on this list that does not know Jesus, that you would uh, be attentive to it and make that miraculous meeting with somebody that is able to convince them of their need for Christ and uh, that uh, they might have a change in mind, a change in heart, and decide that uh, they want uh, the good saving message which comes through him. And Lord, we pray for this uh, study in the next hour and a half and that uh, people would be blessed by it, but they would also uh, be diligent to check what they hear and make sure that uh, whatever they hear is in accord with what you would actually have us to uh, teach. And if not, that you would uh, have that corrected 
through some means available. And we certainly pray this so that you will, will be glorified, that your word will not be misused, and that uh, the people of God will be built up through it. And we pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Okay, we're in, still in one Corinthian, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And today we're starting in verse 27, but there might be somewhere Jim wants to read back from. It's a long paragraph at the top, but it makes sense because he's talking about boasting in hell. Oh, yes. Okay, so let's just start back, way back at the top of the paragraph, which I know is halfway through the verse, but we'll do it anyhow. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, as I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk about this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent the night and a day at open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in dangers from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. 27. I have labored and toiled and have gone and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Okay, I wonder if I'm going to mention who just came to mind. Let me check here first. And uh, uh, yeah, I I am. Who does uh, who does that also remind you of the last the verse he just read? Uh, in hunger and thirst, uh, in cold and nakedness. Anybody else in the Bible you can think of? Well, I'll mention them. Okay. Um, just want to see if anybody was sharp as attack tonight. Um, Paul provides several more specifics concerning the difficulties he had faced for the sake of sharing the gospel message. This list begins with in weariness and toil. If you think of it, just yell out. Go ahead. Um, he gives the same general sentiment using the same two Greek words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So there he says uh, 2 Thessalonians 3 and uh, what was it? Verse 8. He says, for now, we, if we live, you, uh, I know that's not what I, oh, 2 Thessalonians. you got to be in the right book, Charlie. I'm in 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 8 says, oh, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Okay, so that's 2 Thessalonians. Got to get those uh, chapters right. These words probably refer to his personal skill as a tent maker. In working with his own hands, he labored long hours in order to provide the gospel free to those he preached to. The sleeplessness often was probably as much for fear of being attacked as for anything else. He was constantly under threat by those around him. He probably slept with one eye open in order to make sure he wasn't pounced on by one of them. Uh, the words in hunger and thirst certainly came as he traveled around searching for the next person to talk to about Christ. He was less worried about finding a tavern to eat in and more worried about finding a soul to feed the gospel to. And if everybody had that attitude, we'd be a lot better off in the world. I, uh, there are times where we go down to the projects and it's always the first prayer we have is that uh, we will run across somebody that we meet, that we can tell, Jesus, tell to them about Jesus that day. And sometimes it doesn't happen. And then halfway through the walk, we kind of get distracted with other things, talking or 
whatever. And then the opportunity comes along and lo and behold, we're surprised at it when we should have been paying attention and ready for it all the time. But that's, uh, uh, somebody emailed me about that a day ago. They said, what does that mean? You go to the projects and every Saturday, 14 years now, we've been going to the projects. And, uh, you know, if we don't go, the only people down there are the Job's witnesses. We don't see anybody else that goes and knocks on doors or that talks to the people. And you've got a difference between darkness and light. Uh, we're going through one John uh, in the uh, daily commentaries right now. And it's very clear that the spirit of Antichrist is what? Does anybody remember what I said about that in those commentaries? Spirit of Antichrist. He's very clear what it is. It's not some goofy thing that, you know, we're looking for. Spirit of Antichrist is somebody that denies the Father and the Son. It denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. Anybody that denies that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, he is the Son of the Father, meaning he's fully divine and fully human. That is the spirit of Antichrist. You don't need to go anywhere else in Scripture for a definition of Antichrist. When he comes, he will be a person that fundamentally denies the deity of Jesus Christ. Okay? He will be the Antichrist, but he will not be a Antichrist if he does not deny that fundamental principle. That is it. That is Antichrist. Denying the Father and the Son, denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Okay? So, we have the Jehovah's Witnesses in the projects, and that is their principal tenet, is that God did not have a son in the sense of begetting him, that he, that Jesus is a created being who became his son, just like we become sons of God through adoption, okay? Therefore, they are of the spirit of Antichrist. Any religious sect, any cult, and there's hundreds of them, Nestorianism and uh, Patripassionism, and we could go on and on and on, Monophysitism. Uh, there's probably 60 isms that, in one way or another, deny that fundamental principle of Jesus Christ being fully God and that he is the Son of the Father, okay? That is the spirit of the Antichrist. Another religion, which has nothing to do with Christianity, but which is of the Antichrist, is anybody? Mormon. Well, Mormon, but they're kind of tied in with Christianity. They have the Bible is what I'm oh. saying. They're not Christians, but they, they use the Bible. I'm sp speaking specifically about Islam. Their principal tenet in Islam is that God has taken unto himself no partner. That is the highest sin in Islam, bar none other. That is the highest sin is to say that God has a partner, meaning anything, a son, uh, you know, whatever. And so uh, that is, they are of the Antichrist. There's no way around it. That is the, it's the sin of shirk is what it's called in Islam. So you can see that most of the world either doesn't care about Jesus or they are actively Antichrist. Okay, there's very little of true Christianity except, you know, with the people that really believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he is of the Father, he is fully divine. Other than that, for all of the people in the world that say that they are Christians, and they're, you know, like I said, Mormons, and you've got all these other people that claim to be Christians, if they deny that, they are not Christians, in fact, they are Antichrist. Okay, so that's something we need to be very aware of at all times, what the spirit of Antichrist is. Yes? Well, didn't whatever his name was got the vision? Wasn't that around 1500 or something? Who's that? Uh, uh, oh, uh, Muhammad? Muhammad? Oh, that was 670. In about well, 670, anyway, he had... a long time. What happened to all those people before that? What do you mean? Well, you know, if, if we're wrong now, what about those people before? Before what, ever he wrong got about his what? vision. Wherever he got his vision about right. God. You're just saying that if you have to, if you if you take their ism as true, right? People all before Muhammad 
for toast. Oh, absolutely. It's like, you know, it, it just it doesn't make any sense whichever way you slice it. Yeah, no, it makes no sense. Right. Yeah, it's just, but that that is the spirit of Antichrist, just to deny that Christ has come in the flesh and the Father, the Son has a Father, the Father has a Son, the Father-Son relationship. That is the spirit of Antichrist. Now, there are all kinds of other heresies. I could go through, you know, heresy is not bad doctrine. And this is something that people, I know this is kind of a diversion, but it's still something for learning. The difference between bad doctrine and heresy is that bad doctrine will not keep anybody from being saved. You could say, well, I'm mid-trib and I'm post-trib, and one of them is obviously incorrect, or they're both incorrect, but they both can't be true, okay? If one of them is true, the other one is bad doctrine. Nobody's going to lose their salvation out of believing a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whatever, okay? that's that, Yeah, you could tell some people that, but that's why I try to correct them. That has nothing to do with heresy. Heresy is denying a fundamental principle of the Bible, which, if taught, will keep somebody from being saved. I'm going to give you a perfect example of one. Just came to mind. Uh, I was scrolling through Facebook, just waiting for Burke to show up today, and somebody had posted, he's, I guess, a preacher, and he had posted that uh, the uh, uh, Feast of Pentecost has never been fulfilled. And so, is that a heresy or not? The answer is yes. And I corrected him on that. I said, you know, I want you to think this through very carefully, because if, in fact, the Feast of Pentecost is not fulfilled, and it's one of the Feasts of the Lord, then that means that he has not fulfilled the Feast of the Lord. And if he hasn't fulfilled the Feast of the Lord, then he has not fulfilled the Law of Moses. And if he hasn't fulfilled the Law of Moses, then he is not the Messiah, and we are following the wrong Messiah, and therefore we are still in our sins. So you have to think those things through logically. If the Feasts of the Lord, all of them, are not fulfilled, then we are following the wrong person. Because I hate to tell you folks, the Law of Moses is done. I Go read it, Hebrews 7.18, Hebrews 8.13, Hebrews 10.9, Colossians 2.14, three or four verses in Romans, they all say the same thing. We are not under law, we are under grace. The law is annulled, it is obsolete, it is set aside, uh, it is nailed to the cross, and so on. So these are, that's a real heresy that that guy is saying without even thinking of it. He's not intentionally, I'm sure, saying that, but if you think through what he is saying logically, he is saying that Christ did not fulfill the law that the law is incomplete, and therefore we are following the wrong Messiah, okay? That is a heresy. But to argue over pre-trib and mid-trib, or, you know, if Charlie is handsome or ugly, those things have nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is something that has to do with, uh, uh, I'm sorry, heresy has something to do with salvation. Will a person be lost if they are taught that? And then once again, a person can be saved and teach a heresy, Okay, that doesn't mean he's going to lose his salvation, but the person he is teaching will never come to believe in the true Christ. And that's why Paul is very clear in one in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, concerning a false gospel. Because any gospel that is not the gospel is a false gospel, and it is anathema. And he says, let them be accursed. So we have to be very, very careful about what we teach and what we believe. Because if we believe that something from the old covenant is not fulfilled, we have believed incorrectly. If we're not saved, we are not going to be saved because we're following the wrong Christ. If we are saved, we're being duped. Don't be duped. Yes. Job. Job. Sit on the ash heap. Yes. That's the other verse. In today, you ask, was anybody else making it? Oh, no, that's not the one I'm thinking of because it wasn't cold. Okay, and it didn't have sleepless nights. But that was a good guess. Okay, I'm going to give you one wheel off that Maserati. Okay, so we'll go on here. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, where was I? Um, in Hunger and Thirst, uh, he certainly came as he traveled around searching for the next person. I read that. Okay, in Fastings Often, described his self-denial 
in order to come nearer to God in prayer. Fasting is mentioned in Acts 13, verses 2 and 3, and is something that he would be used to as a Pharisee. Jesus noted the fastings of the Pharisees on several occasions. Before I go on, I think I said this during a Bible study recently. If I didn't, good. If I did, I apologize. But people, that is probably in the top 20 of questions that people email and ask me is, uh, how do I fast and when do I fast? And I give them the same answer every single time. I said, I've known, since I've known Christ, I have never fasted, okay? I have no idea because the New Testament doesn't give you any instruction in it at all. It is mentioned one time by Paul when he, talking about doctrine, he says that uh, uh, between a man and a woman that you should, uh, you know, if you uh, refrain from each other for, fa uh, for uh, prayer or fasting, make sure you come back together that the devil doesn't tempt you. That's paraphrase, but anyway. Um, so that's the only time that it's ever mentioned in any context within the New Covenant, okay? It's not mandated. It's not something that you have to do. But if you do do it, my hat is off to you. We have a guy that comes and visits, Ron. He's been here a couple times, and he will actually fast and not eat anything, anything, not a bite, and only drink water for weeks and weeks and weeks. The first time he was here, he was a big guy, and he said, after the fourth or fifth day, the first couple days are just brutal, he says, but after the fourth or fifth day, he says, I have more energy than I ever have. I go out running, and I, it's like I can't stop running because his body is burning off that old fuel that he doesn't need, and he does it for weeks. His wife tried it, and I never got an answer if she uh, completed it or not, but she was here the first time, and she was so tired, she couldn't even, you know, just get up hardly, but what's that? No, she didn't. Anyway, um, uh, anyway um, uh, so my answer is I've never fasted. Don't ask me about fasting. If I, I will know when it's time for me to fast. I will know. And as a matter of fact, I had a doctor appointment about eight years ago. I've never gone in for a physical since I left the military. And I went in for a doctor's physical and they said, okay, you need to uh, not eat after I think eight o'clock at night yeah, and until you go get your blood work. And I didn't go because... I'm sorry, I'm going to eat, and when I get up, I'm going to have a cup of coffee, and I'm going to live my life. And so I've never had a physical of any kind, so if I die of something, I'm just going to keel over from it, because I am not. It doesn't interest me. There's nothing that requires you to fast, but if you want to, if that's something that helps you to get more in tune with the Lord, great. You know, the way I get in tune with the Lord, and uh, people ask me about how do I stay close to Him, I have to force myself. I talked about that with the Bible. Well, I also do it when I'm out working at the mall every morning. I'm taking out the garbage, and what do I do? I talk to the Lord. I'm forcing myself to talk to the Lord. You know, I'm sorry about that. Or I, I oh, isn't that a beautiful flower? We had the uh, night blooming cirrus start this morning. And so I actively talk to the Lord. That replaces my fasting. Maybe some people want to fast and they don't want to have a conversation with the Lord. I don't know. But there's nothing that tells you you need to fast in the New Testament. I'm talking about the New Covenant New Testament. Okay, um, so we'll go on. In cold and nakedness describes a state which he probably faced almost continuously during the winter months, okay? He would have slept outside often as he traveled, and he may not have had a fire to keep himself warm as he did. His clothes were probably not sufficient to keep him warm, and imagine if it rained on him, then you're laying there in the cold. I mean, it just, it must have been brutal. Instead, he would have been more concerned about them being light rather than bulky in order to make traveling easier, especially he talks about fording rivers and doing this, and you got these heavy clothes on, he's not going to want that, okay? Now, the words Paul used to describe himself here very closely match the, match the sufferings of his father of the past, Jacob. 
When Jacob lived in Padan Aram, he tended to his uncle's flocks. During that time, he suffered just as his descendant Paul would suffer for a different type of Gentile flock. That is recorded in Genesis chapter 31. So I'll take you there. So if you see the symbolism there, he, he was tending to his uncle's flocks, Gentiles, and Paul was tending to the Gentile flock of Christ. So it, it makes a beautiful pattern. And I'm glad that I put this that in this commentary because I typed this years ago and I had forgotten that I did. But here's what it says in Genesis 31, starting in verse 36. And one more page here. It says, uh, uh, Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. They're young. And I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, in the day drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my eyes. Thus I have been in your house twenty years. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wage wages ten times. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labors of my hands and rebuked you last night. So there you go. And it's a great parallel, isn't it? If you think about it, it's a wonderful parallel. But um, uh, there you go with that. And before we go on into our life application, I will say that um, uh, our brother here brought, um, what was it? Uh, Voice of the Martyrs video. What What is the name of that? You've got it now. I do. Share their voice. Share their voice. He gave it to me on Sunday. And he uh, asked me to watch it, and I told him I didn't know if I could, but my son did come over last night, and so he knows how to hook up the DVD player. And so he did that for us, and we watched it, and it was one of the quietest meals that we have ever had as a family. And I have to tell you that I had to lean back so Faith wouldn't see me crying because it, it really is moving what these people went through for Christ. And this is happening in our life right now. Uh, if you've never watched any of the Voice of the Martyr uh, videos or if you've never read any of their books or their uh, uh, magazines, I would recommend you do so that you can keep your own life in its proper perspective. Because here in America, we've got everything we need and more, and the slightest little thing affects us like babies. And these people in the world have been beaten so badly that they don't walk well ever again in their life, or they have got physical marks of it. So please, if you get a chance to watch a, a voice, of, you can order them online. You know, you could maybe even watch them online. I don't know that. But uh, you can certainly order the DVDs and you will be blessed by it. So just wanted to recognize that. And we'll go on. Life application. Inconvenience such as Paul faced is some, something many of us have never known. However, there are missionaries around the world who have given up on a life of ease in order to share the message of Christ in places where any and all of the hardships that Paul describes are not uncommon. We just talked about Ray and Jess there in Papua New Guinea. And they certainly, as they get more and more into their ministry because they you know they move there they have to adapt to the country they've got to adapt to the language etc and then eventually they will be moving into a part of the country that nobody's been in probably since world war ii and maybe even then nobody walked through that part of the country and they will be talking to people that don't speak the same dialect that they have learned and they're going to have to learn a new language and they're going to have to learn how to put that into a, a written language and then give them a bible and they'll spend the rest of their life doing that if their bodies can withstand that 
I know another girl that went to Papua New Guinea with Wycliffe translators and she got um, malaria and it destroyed her health. She tried to stay, she got it again, and they said, you have to leave. So she came back and went to Texas and got married. But uh, these, there are people out there that are willing to do these things. And they go through the burdens that you and I don't have to go through. And that's why we want to make sure that we send them money to keep them going, to keep them funded, because they can't live over there without funding, okay? They have to have that resource. And so, you know, if you don't know missionaries, personally and you want to support one, then let me know and I will give you names that, that you can give to. And uh, it's very easy. It's painless. Some of them have it draw out of your bank and you never even know it's gone. Okay. It's just a monthly thing. All right. Just monthly. So you don't even know that the money is gone and you're doing something to help people. If you need names, email me and I'll uh, give you all the names you want. I can also give you the names of a couple of indigenous ministers in Africa, one in Kenya and one in um, uh, Uganda that are well worth supporting. And uh, there you go with that. So uh, take time today to lift those weary souls up in prayer and be willing to honor them through letters, gifts, and support if possible. All right, that's what I recommend because like I said, we've all been so blessed in this nation and, and uh, the more that we have, the less we are willing to give normally. That's just the truth. The poorest people always give the most of what they have. The widow with the uh, two small, uh, pennies put it in the uh, thing at the temple and that was all she had so that's just the way of the world so try to uh, think of the people that need it 1128 uh, go ahead uh, before I do somewhere ask why are you sitting on a pillow because my back hurts every week when I uh, I didn't know that you could see that I'm sorry uh, I, I every week I get up and it really hurts so I put a pillow back here three weeks ago and it felt great and I forgot it for the last two weeks and so today I put it there back and go. it feels great all right, so 28. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Okay, same, same, almost exact same words. Paul has listed many things which have come against him during his evangelistic efforts. He has noted trials, punishments, and perils. In concluding this list, he says, beside the other things, the word used here is only found here in the New Testament, and oh, I'm sorry, yes, found here, is found only in the New Testament, and it's found only three times. Therefore, its meaning is debated. In other words, it's not a word that you're going to find out in the Greek language. It's only in the New Testament, and it's only found three times in the New Testament. It can mean trials which come to me externally, or it can mean other things which I haven't mentioned. The latter is probably correct. He is given a long list of trials, and yet it is not a full and complete list. He has simply highlighted some of the events which he has faced. Along with those many external trials, he also faced, as he says, what comes upon me daily. The phrase here has a much stronger force in the Greek. The word indicates that which rushes upon me. It is like an overwhelming tide. Specifically, he says, it is my deep concern for all the churches. Paul carried with him the constant concern for those he had led to Christ. He wrote them letters, prayed for them, and carried the burden of their staying close to Christ or departing on a wayward path. The mental pressures he faced were probably even more debilitating than the physical trials. These mental pressures rushed upon him as if an unstoppable tide. At times he struggled in his heart for his beloved children in the faith. And if any of you have ever led somebody to Christ, you probably know exactly how that feels because you wonder how they're doing. If you see them falling away from their original zeal for the Lord, you get concerned about it and it weighs on you. 
And hopefully that is the case. And hopefully somebody else isn't worried about you because they led you to the Christ and you're, you know, off on a wayward path as well. But that is something that we should have a burden for. And I know that a good example is going back to the projects again. We go to the projects and we see people. I was thinking this today while I was cleaning the, the men's bathroom. I was in there and I was cleaning it and I thought, 14 years. That means that we saw kids that were this big that are now in college. And sure enough, uh, Ronaldo and his children are in there. And we care about them. And I was thinking about one of them that has had severe trouble in her life. And she got her life back together in a wonderful way. And now she's working, she's happy, she's content. And, you know, you have a burden for people like that. And that's what Paul is saying right here. He says, I have a burden for these people. I worry about them. I established this church. I established their doctrine. And now somebody's coming in and teaching them false doctrine. If you want to know how Paul worried about his churches, just wait one more chapter and we'll be done with the book of 1 Corinthians and we'll see the book of Galatians. Because, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians. And we'll be into the book of Galatians and you'll see how Paul really worried about a church that was on its way to apostasy right? I mean, the Corinthian church is messed up. It's a messed up church full of messed up people, but guess what? What church isn't, right? I mean, he's just writing to a church that happens to have a bunch of problems that you and I have in our own lives and in our own churches. But the Galatians are actually a church that is going from this point to this point, and it's in the wrong direction. So he is going to be very concerned about them, and that's exactly what he is writing about right here. Is that? Let me read that again. These mental pressures rushed upon him as if an unstoppable tide. At times he struggled in his heart for his beloved children in the faith. Just wait until we get to Galatians. Like I say, you can see the anxiety in them about the Corinthians, but they aren't departing into some weird uh, sect. They're not departing into some heretical thing more than they are just departing from being uh, sound Christians. One guy, what was it, 1 Corinthians 5, was doing something sexually immoral that was, as he said, worse than the pagans. But that actually wasn't something that was going to affect the church quite in the same way as what's going to happen to the Galatians that we're going to see. Now, if the whole church saw that and the whole church started to fall away, that would be a different thing. But uh, there you go with that. Paul is concerned about his churches. He's concerned about each issue that arises in his churches. But at the same time, he's got a burden, especially for doctrine, okay, more than anything else. The Bible scholar Farrar remarks on verses 23 through 28 saying that it is the most marvelous record ever written of any biography, a fragment beside which the most imperiled lives of the most suffering saints shrink into insignificance, and which shows us how fractional at the best is our knowledge of the details of St. Paul's life. In other words, he wrote these things. He gives you just a very broad brushstroke of his life and what's going on. But if you think about the circumstances behind what he has written in these few short verses, what was that, 23 through 28, which you read all of them today, you can, you can begin to piece together in your mind maybe what it was like for Paul. Because, you know, this wasn't, it takes us, you know, uh, uh, three minutes to read through the chapter and it might take us how long to get through the chapter in a Bible study, uh, uh, two weeks or three weeks, okay? Doesn't take that long. But these writings of Paul encompass years and years and years of his life out walking around, literally walking around. Distances would be like me walking all over Florida, just talking to people and then going back and saying, I got to go back up to Jacksonville and I got to see these people. And, you know, I got to plan it because it's going to be cold and I left my uh, cloak at uh, 
uh, where was it, Troas, I think, yes, Troas, and, you know, so I got to write to Timothy and have him send me my cloak, and he's got to do all this, and how am I going to get this done, and I got this letter from these people over in uh, Sanford, they think that they're, uh, uh, you know, whatever, and he's worrying about him all the time, and so we can fill in mentally what it would have been like for Paul, and we can see that what we go through is nothing compared to what Paul went through. It really is a wonderful passage when you think of it from that perspective. Life application. Do you carry the burden in your heart for those who have come to Christ in your life but have then fallen away? Do you have a desire to see the immature in the faith grow into maturity? Such things should be at the forefront of our hearts and prayers as we bring these burdens to God. Remember those around you as you speak to him, lifting them up along with all of the other physical needs that others have that are so commonly prayed for. That is what we should do, and that is what Paul did, and that is what Paul is writing to us about, instruction on how to maintain ourselves in the church. Okay, 1129. Assuming we do get done tonight with this chapter. Oh, we will. We'll be it's done. a month. Yeah. A, a month. Okay, so one month to get through the chapter, and that's not too bad. All right. Who is weak? I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin, and I do not burn inwardly? Okay, this one is a little different. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? So is it burning inwardly? Some people might say that he has, you know, it's just an example. Okay, I'm not saying he had this, but it, it, it could be I burn inwardly, I lust after women. Or I burn inwardly, I, I am angry about things I shouldn't be angry. Or is it I burn with indignation, which would be a completely different type of burning. I'm angry at sin. I'm angry at how that church is falling away. So you have different views on what Paul is saying here. All it says is if you take out the uh, italicized word, who is made to stumble and I do not burn. Okay, so you have to insert in your mind, what is he talking about? Because he's talking about stumbling. And so burning with indignation doesn't really seem correct because he's talking about, you know, stumbling, then I'm stumbling, so I must be burning inwardly, okay? But at the same time, maybe he's saying that uh, who is made to stumble and I don't burn with indignation because somebody made them stumble, right? So you have to look at it and you have to decide what is Paul thinking? And it makes it difficult sometimes for translators to get the right thought and we might not know until we're in glory, okay? Or somebody might write a commentary that is so convincing, we'll say, yeah, I actually agree with that. But there you go. Um, question, have you talked to mom at all? Because she's not here. She didn't say she wasn't going to be here. So we need, when we get home, you need to make sure we call and find out if she is A-okay, okay? All right. Um, unless she shows up late, then I'll belittle her, okay? But yeah. we'll not do that unless, uh, uh, we just need to make sure mom's okay. All right, 1129, go ahead. Oh, you read it. Okay, and I just read it. And Okay, from verses 22 through 27, Paul spoke of those physical things which pertain to him, which were in comparison to the false apostles he has been referring to, okay? He was showing the Corinthians that if they could adore the false apostles for their attributes, then he had that much more of all of those attributes to which they could attach their adoration to. This was done, of course, in a manner not intending for them to idolize him, but to show them that they were misdirected in their attitude of elevating man in the way that they had. All right, and I talked about that, especially, you know, we do that. We do that in churches. We do that because somebody's famous on YouTube. We do that because somebody speaks Hebrew. We do that for all kinds of the wrong reasons. We elevate people unnecessarily, okay? And it, it's not right, okay? Um, who was it? Somebody sent me something today. I've got to think of it really quickly. Um, um, 
I can't think of who sent it, so I won't say it. Anyway, it's kind of a cute little thing, but um, uh, we, we just got to be careful with that type of attitude. We got to be careful not to idolize people or put anybody on a pedestal. It doesn't matter how famous they are. And I think I gave the example that if somebody is famous, comes to town, and he happens to have lunch at the restaurant you're at, and you're next to him, and you say, hey, are you? And he says, what is the first thing you do? You get your picture with them and you post it on Facebook so everybody can see that you were with a famous person and that supposedly elevates you in your who you are. When actually it doesn't do anything, he's just a guy that happens to be fortunate enough to be, you know, yeah, notable. So it, it doesn't really mean anything. It might mean something to you personally because you've respected his acting or his singing or whatever, but it doesn't really do anything. But for the next 20 years of your life or 30 years of your life or however long you live, you will bring that up from time to time. Oh. I had dinner with, uh, you know, Charlie Garrett. <laughs> oh, that was the worst dinner of my life. And you know what I'm saying. Anyway. Um, one of the bodies buried in the backyard. Yeah, one of the bodies buried in the backyard. <laughs> but, but they, uh, yeah, yeah, I had dinner with, um, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then everybody thinks, ooh, ah, who cares when you think about it? Who really cares? I, I will tell you something. I had dinner with Tom Alley. Actually, lunch at Tom, with Tom Alley many, many, many times for 14 years. And that is probably the greatest honor that I could ever want. Anybody online know Tom Alley? Okay, we in the church do, but most people don't. I can tell you it's one of the greatest honors of my life. And, huh? No, I'm not going to bring him up here. I'll embarrass him. But And the same thing is true with Steve and with Rick and with Jim and everybody else that goes out there. These are people that go out every week of their life and they give their lives to the Lord, right? And they're Chris. doing it for Chris as well, right? I mean, that's an honor to have dinner with these people. Or I should say lunch. Dinner is nighttime to me. I know it's different in different parts of the country, but lunch. Anyway, that's what I'm saying. What are our priorities? Where are they? Okay, let's go on. In verse 28, Paul went from the external to the internal with the words, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily. And then he says, my deep concern for all the churches. His concern for the churches and all of the mental trials were also a part of his efforts for the churches he ministered to. Continuing on now with the inward things which he struggled, he asks, Who is weak? And I am not weak. This is a verse concerning his empathy for the trials that those in the church face. He was showing them that he was just like them. They had weaknesses, and he too faced his own weaknesses. People ask me that all the time. They say, you know, I got this problem, and I say, I try to empathize with them, and I will never lie about it, but if they have a problem that I have, I say, I have exactly that same problem, okay? Uh, somebody will email me, and they'll say, I, I'm just so ugly, and nobody likes me. I say, man, that's me. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm just, but you know what I'm saying? If somebody emails me, and they have a problem that I can empathize with, I'm going to tell them. I'll even give them circumstances, and we'll talk it through, because it, this is what you do. And that's, you know, they had weaknesses, and he, too, faced his own weaknesses. These people that email have their problems, and I may have had it, and if I do, or what I can do is I will have somebody, you know, we've had several people, we all know a couple people here who have had children that have died, self-inflicted, okay? And when that happens, I have no empathy at all. I, I have no way to empathize with them because it's beyond my ability to understand. But I know people that have had that happen to them who are now ready to talk to other people about that. And I always email, can I refer you a person? And the answer is always yes, because they understand the heartbreak that that person is going through right at that point. And so I will send them to them, and hopefully they will be able to guide them through something that I have no qualification to, nor do I ever hope to. But if I do someday, then I will be able to hopefully lean on them 
And then someday somebody will be able to lean on me because this is the world we live in. We have weaknesses and we have burdens. And if we can share that with somebody else that we've experienced, that will lighten their burden. Nobody wants to feel alone in the world, okay? However, speaking of Paul, he not only faced his own weaknesses, but he also empathized in their weaknesses with them, which is what I was trying to tell you when somebody emails me, if I can. To understand this, we can go to 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13, where he says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He says, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul understood that there were those who were weak in the faith over certain issues. Okay, not eating meat, I hate to tell you, if you're one of them, that's fine. Nobody's here to belittle you, but that is weakness in the faith. Because the Lord, back in Genesis chapter 9, said that every animal that moves is food for you. Every animal. There's no animal that is exempted from you to eat. You know, unless, obviously, if it's poisonous, don't pick it up and try to eat it. That's not the point. But every animal is good, okay? And then there was this little group of people that were called out of the world, and they were given dietary laws for a specific purpose, okay? And those dietary laws pertained only to that group of people, to no other group of people on the planet, okay? That's the law of Moses. That was for a reason. It was for a lot of reasons, but one of them was to lead them to Christ as a tutor, showing that they need something greater than what the law provides, but also to give us pictures of Christ, etc. Okay, but during that time, the world is still going on under the dispensation of government, which is Moses. I'm sorry, Noah, and the world is allowed to eat anything. But during that time, this inevitably happens. And before I continue with my point, I'll tell you what somebody posted on Facebook one time is, or not in uh, Facebook, it was in a uh, commentary. Um, I think it was on some YouTube channel, but they said that when people are poor, they're not worried about veganism. They're worried about their next meal, okay? You're in Africa, and, you know, we can condemn people all day long for eating meat, but when somebody's poor, they will eat whatever is set before them, and they will go get it if they have to, okay? So that's kind of a not issue, but as the world progresses, and as you start getting one step away from the butcher's market, remember in the uh, 1800s, you look at pictures of the butcher's market, the lady would go in and the animals would be hanging right there like they do in China today. And they'd pick out the one they want and they'd kill the animal and then they'd, uh, I mean, this is the world we live in, okay? Well, eventually they started having meat processing places. And so you don't see the animal being butchered. And then after that, they would package it up and they put in a little thing and they'd ship it off to the grocery and you pick it up and it's just a piece of meat. And you don't think this actually came from an animal. You never consider that. But some people can never get beyond the killing of the animal. They think how terrible it is. Okay. And because of that particular thing, Paul calls that a weakness. All that talking to get to that one point. So you understand what Paul is saying. There's a weakness in not eating meat because in Genesis 9, God gave all the animals to man as food. They are here for our use. They're not here for our abuse. And that's a different story. And that's what the problem with leftism does is they take use and they turn it into abuse. And that's inappropriate. They are here for our use. Okay. So if their weakness, not eating meat, demanded that he become like them in order to keep them from stumbling, then he would do so. This is, but did Paul say, I don't eat meat? No. 
He never did, okay? He was a Jew. He would have eaten anything set before him. And uh, even he went in and ate with the Gentiles and he ate whatever was set before him. He even talks about that in 1 and 2 Corinthians, okay? So we know that he ate and he ate anything that was set before him without asking questions. He was very clear about that, okay? So um, he never said, I don't eat meat. He's making a point that if this caused this bro brother to stumble, I would never eat meat again. Doesn't mean he didn't eat meat again, but if he was in the presence of a brother that didn't eat meat, he wouldn't eat it again, implying that any other time when he wasn't with that brother, he would be eating meat, okay? So please get theology right because people will argue over things without thinking the whole picture through. Paul ate meat, Paul ate meat and Paul would have eaten anything set before him. And they'll say, oh, Paul uh, was an observant Jew his whole life. No, he wasn't. He was an observant Christian. He followed Jesus Christ. He specifically says the law is nailed to the cross, and he ate whatever was set before him. Okay, This is then confirmed in his actions that are noted in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. We just said 1, verse 8, uh, 1 Corinthians verse 8, 13. Now 1, verse, 1 Corinthians verse 9, 22. With the words, to the weak, I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. That's right. Okay. Following this, he next says, who is made to stumble? And do I not burn? And then the two words, the New King James Version says with indignation. That's translator's preference. Again, he shows his empathy for the situation as believers still trapped in this weakened body of flesh. There are two general views on how this verse is to be interpreted. One is purely of empathy and one is of indignation over the offense. In other words, the word burn pertaining to his own is the word burn pertaining to his own internal lusts, which he struggles with, empathy with those who face the same, or is the word used concerning his indignation over their weakness. Okay, and I kind of addressed that beforehand. The word for burn is only used one other time in a non-literal sense. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9, there it says, for it is better to marry than to burn, and then the translators insert the words with passion. Okay, well, obviously that's correct, because what else are you going to, if you're not married and you're burning with passion, then he says get married. Okay, it's better to marry than burn with passion. So you can kind of guess that's the right sense of that particular word. What seems more probable, this is Charlie Garrett, my, my thought on it, is that Paul is using it in the same manner when applied to himself. This, thus, this is a verse of empathy, it is not of indignation, okay? The New King James Version translators disagree. They went with indignation. I would say it is a verse of empathy. First, it is in line with the previous example of being weak, and secondly, it conforms to the next verse, which speaks of the things which concern my infirmity, okay? It is unlikely that Paul would show indignation at another's weakness and then boast of his own frailties. See that? Everybody got that? That's why I think that, okay? This doesn't mean that Paul didn't burn with indignation at his own stumbling or at the stumbling of others, but that he really faced such things as a human being. So he was really burning with his own inward passions, and he was empathizing with people as well. But as we will see in Galatians, and as we saw kind of in 1 Corinthians 5, he will also burn with indignation. He gets very upset about people that misuse their freedom in Christ, okay? However, it appears that many scholars are afraid to admit that Paul actually burned with passions, as if admitting this would somehow diminish him in his ministry. But 
This is exactly what he is trying to do, is to diminish himself in his ministry. For the past seven verses, that's all he has done, is to diminish himself. He is trying to get people's eyes off of the flesh and onto the strength of Christ, which is more powerful than our weakness, right? Okay, Charles Ellicott is one of the few who is willing to accept that this is the proper way of interpreting this verse. He says, this is Ellicott's words, men came to the apostle with their tales of shame and told how they had been tempted and had fallen. And here too, he, in that illimitable sympathy of his, seemed to have traveled with them on the downward road. He himself suffused, as it were, with the burning glow of their shame. He blushed with them and for them as though the sin had been his own. That's an exception, as Charles Ellicott, because most of them never want to diminish Paul in any way. And they do exactly what I was saying. Don't do to people. Don't elevate people. Instead, look at Paul. He was a human being. And what did he say? I asked three times for this weakness to be taken from me. And the divine answer came back. No, that's right. My, my, your strength is perfected or my strength is perfected in your weakness. Okay, so even there he's admitting that he's weak. It's not a problem to look at Paul as a regular guy because he was all right, and I would agree with Ellicott and his analysis, beautifully written as it is. Okay, life application. <clears throat> Anyone, even your favorite pastor or preacher, I hate to tell you, I don't care who you idolize that's in the pulpit, burns inwardly in one way or another. Okay, I had lunch at the uh, Turtle Beach pub about a year ago with my friend. I think it was Hank I was talking to that day, and he had gone to a uh, uh, conference with... Um, uh, a bunch of pastors, big name pastors all over the place. And uh, the guy that was doing the conference said, who here has uh, had to deal with sexual sin in their life? And he says, I don't mean just actual, I mean in your thoughts. And he said, almost every single person, and some were the most famous pastors that he knew, raised their hands and, hey, we're guys, we're girls, we're made this way. And so if somebody th thinks that they're alone in this, they are not. And people that don't raise their hands are probably, I hate to say it, but L-Y-I-N-G, okay? We're human beings, okay? We, we look at things we shouldn't look at. We think things we shouldn't think. It's natural. It happens. And what we do is we redirect our minds and we focus on Christ. That's why he said, my strength is perfected in your weakness. We can't do it, but he can then that's why we hand it over to the Lord and keep handing it over to him. And eventually he will strengthen us to the point where we don't need to worry about these things. And that would be when we die, of course, until we're out of this body of, we're always going to have something that's limiting sin us. Sex. Yeah, sin, what did you call it? Sin sacks. We're sacks of sin. That's right. That's good. good term. Okay, life application. I said that. Don't think that anyone is above this. If you face weaknesses and they claim that they don't, you might start looking for a new church without such an arrogant soul making claims which are simply not true. He, If he cannot empathize with you, then he might be prone to lording his supposed superiority over you. And we don't need that in life. We need people that can empathize or that can direct us to somebody that can empathize. Okay? Pastor should know his people well enough that if somebody has had a problem in their life that maybe they can help with, I'm going to send them to that person. Okay? 1130. Yeah. Intense concern is the the wording here this intense concern. concern i like that intense yeah. concern that's in, that's good well that's a well-worded read that read it out the whole set the whole verse oh who is weak without my being weak who is led into sin without my intense concern that's very good yeah that's well done okay go ahead 30. Um, three questions though the uh 
New King James Version has that in a different font. Yes. Okay. That is, um, there's two things that the King James Version will do. One is to put it in italics if it is an inserted word, because some thoughts have to be inserted. The Greek stops or the Hebrew stops, and we have to let our minds go beyond it. And they will do that for you to help you think, because some people just read it and they don't know, what does that mean? I just burn. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Okay. So they will say with indignation or with whatever. Okay. The second thing that the New King James Version will do, and other translations will do this, and I can't remember the font name, but they will take any Old Testament reference and they will put it in a font. It looks almost like, um, uh, what, what did I just say? Um, no. Italics. It's almost like italics, but it's not. And so any Old Testament reference will be in that other script. Okay. And that is to offset it, showing that I am quoting scripture. Okay, and so you'll see two different fonts. They're very close in most Bibles. Okay, they're very close, but one is insert, one is Old Testament scripture being uh, cited by the apostle or the writer of the uh, particular epistle. Okay, that's the difference. So this one would have to be insert. But that is this one. Insert. Yes, okay. this one is definitely it. All it says in the Greek is "I burn," but. Somebody that's reading the Bible won't have any idea what that means. So the translators will supply their thoughts, and they may very well may be wrong. That's why when we do the sermons on Sunday, it's difficult and tedious as they may be. It's because there are errors in almost every verse of every translation of some Bible. Okay, this week, I'll tell you one right now. They are going to go over the Valley of Zered, okay? It's very simple words in the Hebrew. And what does the New King James Version do? They add in an article in front of Zered. Go over the valley of the Zered. It's not in Hebrew. Okay? So, that's an error. So, when I get to that particular verse, I'm going to read it in Hebrew, and I'm going to read it as it says in English. Because I don't want people to, even though this is the one I'm reading, and people will say, well, why do you read a Bible that has errors in it? I hate to tell you, they all do. Every single Bible has got numerous, countless errors in it. It's just because, trans as I explained, I think, in this class, it may have been somebody I was talking to, but when you have a Bible translation, you've got a committee, and it might be 30, it might be 50, it might be 100 people, and they give them this chapter to do or this book of the Bible to do, and they do it. Or you might have three chapters of Leviticus, and then somebody else gets three chapters of Levit Leviticus, and this guy is going to translate the same word differently here and here. Okay, and now you've got something that isn't an error, but you've got a miscommunication. But if the intent of this is to be the same as this, then it becomes an error. So that, that is a problem. And what happens is after the translation committee, it goes to a style committee. And they get in there and they make style. And they say, well, your, your wording isn't really good. Are you sure that's what the Hebrew says? Here's how we're going to say it better in English. You got the style. But that is too late. They don't know that that word there and that word there were the same word. And so they just write it for style now. And this, it goes through, an, it goes through a very big process. It, that's just two little parts of an entire process that takes literally years to translate a Bible. Years, okay? And so you're always going to have errors. Always. Isn't it ironic that the original translators of the King James Version said had the best resolve for that, and now it's ignored completely? That's right. They, they, they were very clear about be careful with translations. And then they even said, you know, this, this translation has, the, the word they use is um, uh, infinite differences from this translation, and yet they're both acceptable. Okay? So they acknowledge the differences in translation do not make them unacceptable. You've got a difference from here. 
we're debating on which is correct. I've given my reason why I think it is. These guys had their reason why they thought it was, as wrong as they are. I'm kidding. Anyway, um, so there you go. It, it's a big process. It's not something that people should really kill each other about, but it does happen. Okay, they eat each other alive over these things. Okay, go ahead. Yes, to resolve it, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Okay, show my weakness. Paul has established that all of the things the false apostles had boasted in, he had more reason to boast. What were they? He was also, and even more. After demonstrating to the Corinthians that he was eminently qualified to boast in such things, he then wrote about his weaknesses. And that was that he was one who stumbled. From that thought, he now adds on words of this verse. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. In other words, the previous boastings were done in an ironical and sarcastic manner. Okay, he's trying to make a point, and so that's why he was doing it. He didn't really boast in those fleshly things at all, but instead named them to show that what the Corinthians thought to be important was, in fact, unimportant. That's right. Now he will begin to show the things that he could truly boast in, the things which concern my infirmity. In this, he is showing that the very things which he, which are considered weak, unappealing, useless, and so on, are those things which are greater than the supposed greatest boastings of the false apostles. It is nicely reflected in his previous words to them in his first epistle, where he said these words, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. These things are well summed up in his coming words of chapters, chapter 12, verse 9, which we're going to get to very soon, but which say, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Life application, those things which seem contemptible in the eyes of the false apostles are the things we might have reason to boast the most. The Lord is looking on the internals. If they are sound, then all of the outward flash is seen to be useless, even harmful in our walk with the Lord. And actually, I would say it's more than harmful. If you have a lot of flash as a preacher or a teacher or even a person that's, you know, just in the church and you sit back there with your Bible unopened and, you know, no notes in it. It's just flash, and it's more harmful than almost anything else because you're supposed to be in the Word. Have it open and have, you know, your finger stains all over it, maybe some coffee spilled on it or whatever. I mean, it's it's your Bible. Take good care of it if you can, but if something happens to it, go out and get another Bible, or better yet, have another one handy in case, you know, I have at my house a fish net, and I go out and I try to catch fish for my wife. I don't like fish, okay, but I try to catch fish for my wife. Then I go out and I see a fish and I throw the net and I catch fish and I bring it in, right? Well, guess what I have at the house? I have another fish net because someday that net is going to break or it's going to tear or whatever and I always have a spare. And when that one gets thrown away, the very first thing I do is I buy another one. And so I've always got several different styles of nets, but I've got two of every single net that I need at the house, okay? Why wouldn't I do that with the Bible? Why wouldn't I have at least one extra Bible in case a burglar came and he robbed my house and the only thing he took was my Bible? Then what am I going to do? I've got to have another Bible to read in the morning, right? 
Okay, so have another Bible, and guess what you can do with another Bible as well? This is something that most of you probably don't realize that you can do with the second Bible. You can give it away. Jim got that one. He's seen Chris down at the projects, hasn't he? She's given away more Bibles than we've ever had in this church physically, I'll bet. She gives them away just like they were candy, okay? And so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, if you don't have two Bibles in your house, you probably should go get one tomorrow so you have a spare just in case. Okay, that's just my little recommendation to you. Think of the fishnet and then go buy a Bible. Okay, um, we are, um, yes, 131, 1131. The thing that I would terrorize myself about giving up this Bible is all the notes. All the notes. You know what, talking about that. I feel the same way. I've got my original Bible that mom gave me years ago. It's back there on the shelf, and it has got thousands of little notes in there. It's got notes that I, it, they're all detailed, and I counted how many days it was from the day that Abraham did this until the day Abraham did that, or he was this many days old, or this many years, month, and days old, or I just had notes all over that. And I thought, I just could never give that away, and Chris does exactly the opposite. She gets a Bible, and she puts notes in it all over it, and then she gives it to somebody else, and I'm like... I, I just wouldn't want to do that, but whatever. Okay, go ahead, 31. 31. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. Okay, this one says it a little differently, doesn't it? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying, okay? That's probably in the original text. I don't know. I don't have it in front of me. It may be that one says uh, the and one says our, but... Anyway, does yours say the uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ or just the Lord Jesus? Of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so then it's definitely in the translation. That one says the Lord Jesus. That would be the Alexandrian text, and the Byzantine says our Lord Jesus Christ. So definitely it's a textual change. Somebody either added Christ in or they took it out, or it could be that they didn't purposely take it out. It's just that uh, your eye goes over it when you're writing. You're looking at the next line above it, and it might say Jesus, and this one actually says Jesus Christ. And so your eye catches that and you look down and you just write Jesus. There are so many ways of making translational or um, uh, transcribal errors. There, It is literally a study that you would be amazed. I went through a, just a very short one at college, a very short one. And I could have spent the rest of my life doing that as, as a job instead of, you know, uh, preaching. I could have been in Bible, uh, you know, uh, transcribal or... or how did we get to the text we're in? One copy of one translation of the Greek text of the Bible may have thousands of errors, and yet they know exactly what it says because they have other texts and they can compare them. And I've done this on the board for you before. They might say, um, uh, I'll give you a real quick example so you can see it, is that um, uh, I am taking you to the store. And then this one says, I am taking you to, uh, but you is spelled differently, okay? I am taking Y-X-U to the store. And the next one says, I am taking X-O-U to the store. And so they take all of those together and they know that the word is you and they see that this one has an X there, it has an X. And pretty soon they can take those many, many uh, uh, manuscripts and they can 100% completely define what the original was from those. It's a very wonderful science. They know exactly how the error was made. They know what the scribe did because on this document, the you know it's written here and this word is above this word, whereas on this document, it's one long sentence and it's over here instead of over here. And they know. They know exactly why these things have happened. And the beauty of the New Testament is because we have this is several years ago, but at the time, it was 5,686 original manuscripts, meaning original Greek manuscripts. And so 
what they did is they, they wanted to get the word out all over the Roman Empire. And so what did they do? They just hired scribes to just, just write this thing. And they weren't really careful, okay? That didn't matter to them. What mattered is getting the message of Jesus out. And God knew that he could preserve his word through many errors. He could do it just as well as having no errors with the Hebrew. It was the same process, but you have to have many manuscripts in order to do it. Whereas with the Hebrew, you have very few manuscripts. So they can tell the errors based on a few documents, which are very precise, but will have differences here or there. Like the Masoretic text will have this, and the Dead Sea Scrolls will have this. Well, guess what? We've got the Samaritan Pentateuch, and we've got the uh, Greek translation. And they can take the four that don't match the fifth, and they can say, we know this is wrong. So we know what the Bible says. We know. Old Testament, new. It's just two completely different ways of getting to the perfection of God's word. One is very few manuscripts. One is thousands and thousands and thousands, which lead us to knowing. But when they do this, a translation, they're going to go to the main uh, uh, one that they think is more correct. And that would be either the Alexandrian or the Byzantine. And so that's why yours says this and this says this. But if you look at the footnotes, normally it'll say, like right here, it'll say uh, 12.1 NU text reads, 12.11 NU text omits, 12.19 NU text reads. And so they tell you the differences. So you have that information. Always read the footnotes. That's what I tell people because now you have the information that tells you why Jim's Bible is a little different than my Bible. Okay, let's uh, go ahead. You've read that verse, right? Um, so that was um, verse 31. My, my Bible says edited here by Charlie Garrett. Yeah, edited by Charlie Garrett. Probably not. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would be a, yeah. Okay, 1131. Here we go. But Paul now invokes the name of the Father for what he is about to say. It is certain that this is about the coming verse and not the preceding verses. Because in just the verse prior, he said, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. This was concerning future thoughts. Now, in order to show the truth of what he will say, he invokes the name of the Father as a solemn testimony that his words will be truthful. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is named as a confirmation of the Godhead itself. Okay, Jehovah's Witnesses deny that. He's confirming it right here. His gospel message of Christ is approved by God the Father. The next words, who is blessed forever, could be speaking of either God the Father or our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 1.25, he uses God and Creator in one thought. In Romans 9.5, he uses God and Christ in one thought. In this case, Lord Jesus Christ is the nearest antecedent. It appears that he is saying that our Lord Jesus Christ is blessed forevermore. Does everybody understand that? Because he is the Son of God of the Father, or the Son of, yeah, the Son of God, the Father. Okay, in other words, what antecedent, it's just a word that simply means I am writing um, uh, Chris and Tom are going to the um, uh, IHOP after the projects, and he is going to pay. Okay, Chris is a guy, not the, not the girl, Chris. Okay, so who is going to pay? Because I said Chris and Tom are going to IHOP and he is going to pay. How do you know? The general rule of thought is the nearest antecedent. That means it would be Tom because Chris was mentioned first, Tom is here. And so logically, if we don't have our commas and everything in order, we would logically and mentally assume that it is speaking of the nearest antecedent, Tom. Okay, you wouldn't think that Chris is paying naturally. Okay, so that's why... 
uh, God, our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Um, he is blessed forevermore being the Son of God the Father, okay? That is what he is blessed about. In other words, it is a reference to the Godhead. This might seem like overanalyzing the few words he has penned, but he has done this for a reason. And in his invocation of the Godhead, he says that he knows that I am not lying. Why would Paul find it necessary to make such an affirmation? Why would he do it? A few possibilities exist. First, because of the incredible nature of some of the things he is about to relay, and so he invokes God's name. Secondly, because there were no witnesses at hand who were available to support his claims. So he's saying something that happened to him when he was on the sea in a little boat all by himself, okay? Nobody can substantiate it, and so I'm going to say this. Or maybe he was in the uh, woods and he climbed up a tree and nobody knew he was there and he camped there for three weeks and so nobody saw it, okay? That would be the, the circumstances. And third, because there may be those who charged him with not being straightforward about his claims. For these and possibly other reasons, he makes this solemn invocation, okay, which he's going to make in just a minute. Life application. We are shown in the word that it is not inappropriate to invoke the name of God in order to substantiate our claims. You hear people do this all the time. It's not inappropriate. But like Paul, let us do so sparingly and for reasons which are sound. Paul did it to make a sound logical defense of what he is going to say. And so there's nothing wrong with doing that. God would not allow Paul to put that into the word unless it was acceptable. Got that one? Okay. A person who continuously invokes God's name, even over minutia, demonstrates that he probably cannot be trusted in the first place. It also shows that the name of God is not held in high esteem by him. Okay, so there you go. That's some logical reasons why Paul would do this. Now, before we go on, I want to take you to one of the most debated passages in Scripture because we just talked about the Neristani season. And I want to show you a, a perfect example of what is this talking about. And you have to decide, okay? This is Daniel 9, 24 through 27. I know this is a diversion, but it will help you think through why you make one choice over another. I gave you a defense, but here's one. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Okay, first, he's talking to who? This is an angel speaking to who? Yeah. Daniel. Daniel was a Jew. Jew. So when it says, your people, who is it speaking about? The, the Jewish people. Your holy city, Jerusalem. No doubt about it, okay? People can try to insert anything they want into there. They are taking it out of its context. There is a context, and that is this divine or heavenly being or is speaking to uh, Daniel, who is a Jew, and he's speaking about his people and his holy city. To bring in everlasting, oh, let me go back. To finish the transgression, that's a bad thing. To make an end of sins, that's a bad thing. To make reconciliation for iniquity, that's a bad thing. Three negative things, not really bad, but negative. It's putting it in the positive. You're going to end this, you're going to end this, but they are negative things that need to occur. And then three good things or positive things, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So those are positive things. They've got to do away with three things, and they've got to do three things during the time frame that he has just been given. This is the Jewish people, and this is uh, the holy city of Jerusalem. That is what the reference is, okay? And he said that 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven years are are 
authorized for that, okay? I know this is a big diversion, but it's important to understand the one point that I'm going to get to in verse 27. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that there is a giant study. We couldn't even get close to getting into it today, but uh, the rebuilding of the city, um, going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince is Atarsus 445 BC. Other people will say that it was Darius in 539 BC. It's wrong, and I can show you why sometime. But anyway, there are seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, seven plus 62 is what? 69 weeks, okay? 69 is times 7 is 483, okay? All right, so 483 years, um, uh, there will be, the street will be built again and the wall. That gives you a clue right there is it's Nehemiah and it's the decree of Atarsarses, okay? Because the wall was built and the entire book of Nehemiah is about what? Building a... Wall. There you go. Okay. Anyway, even in troublesome times, which it was, there they had to build a wall with one hand, carry a spear with another. Okay. So anyway, and after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. That means the Messiah is going to die, but he's not going to die for himself. He's going to die for the sins of the world. Okay. We got that. That's verse twenty-six. And the people of the prince who is to come, who is the people of the. Yeah, the Romans destroyed Rome, okay? It says, and the people of the prince who is to come. It doesn't say the prince is coming. It can't be Titus because it would have said the prince who is to come. It is not Titus, all right? So, the people of the prince who is to come, meaning the Romans, shall destroy the city. What city? Jerusalem. He just said it in verse uh, 24. Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. And till the end of the war, desolations are determined. How many sevens has he given you so far? He's given you 62 and 7, which is 69, right? 483 years. We haven't got to the 77th yet. He hasn't mentioned that. And then what does it say? Then he, here it is, the most, literally the most important pronoun in the entire Bible, if you want to know the future end time events, if you want to understand them properly, you have to know who this is. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. The prince. Why the prince? Why did you say that? The He's the nearest antecedent. That is why you would choose that. Because the one before that is Jesus. And if you're a praetorist and you believe that the Jews are out, you're going to say it's Jesus. And that it's all been fulfilled and that scripture has no more future prophecy and we're ushering in the kingdom age and the world is getting better and better by the way and Jesus is coming soon because we've got the world in exactly the shape it's supposed to be in. That's their mentality. But the nearest antecedent for this pronoun is not Jesus. It is not his death, burial, and resurrection. It is speaking about somebody who is going to come against Israel, Jerusalem, the people of Israel. Okay, but in the middle of the week, meaning in the middle of this seven-year period, He's, I'm going to do a whole thing on this soon. I'm going to do a prophecy update just on this, and I'm going to show you why people that continuously badger mid-tribulation rapture over people's heads are so completely wrong is because they don't take into account this section right here, Daniel 9. If you understand Daniel 9, 24 through 27, you won't make that error. I won't go any further. I'll just keep talking all night, but it is the nearest antecedent. It is him who is being spoken of. So when I say that Tom and, I'm sorry, um, uh, uh, Jim and Tom are going to lunch on Saturday and he will buy me lunch, there doesn't have to be any fighting between the two of them because I just go to the nearest Danny scene and say, Tom, fess up. Okay, there we go. 
Okay, so here we go. We're going to go on with um, what verse are we in? 32? Uh, yes. Go ahead. No, no, I did 32. I, no, no, I, I haven't. Did not, I did not. Okay, in Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Messenes guarded in order to arrest me. Okay, this one says desiring to arrest me. Okay, I think, I could be wrong on this. I think it's Damascenes is how you pronounce that. I could be, you may have been right. It may be each, it, okay, anyway, it's one, I've always said Damascenes and I've never looked the word up in the original, so I don't know. But I've read it and not even paid attention is what I should say. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, Paul just said that in verse 30, that I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. After that, he gave a solemn testimony that his words were true. Now, suddenly, he introduces this statement as his first evidence of his infirmity. To set up what he considered the infirmity to be, he opens with this verse concerning his time in Damascus. It is referred to in Acts 9, 23 through 25, but with different detail given here, okay? Let's go ahead and read that really quickly so that, let me turn there, 9, 23 through 25, and we'll just read that just so you know what I'm talking about, Acts uh, whoops, I'm in 23. i got to go back to 9, Charlie. Okay, 9, and then 23 says, uh, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Verse 25, Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. Okay, so you've got uh, those uh, verses right there. And I'm going to read you again, just so you can make a reference of what we just read. 32, in Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. So you got a little bit of different information there, okay? And um, he first notes the governor under Aretas, the king. The term for governor is used only here in the New Testament. It is ethnarchis, okay? It is a word consisting of two separate words, ethnos, which means a race or a people group, okay? ethnos, and then archol, which means to rule or to reign. Thus, he was the leader of the people of Damascus, all right, the ethnos of Damascus. Aretas, or Haret, was the father-in-law of Herod Antipas, whose capital was the city cleft out of rock, which is, anybody? What? Petra, that's right. Okay, so if you don't know where that is, just go watch uh, Indiana Jones, The Final Crusade with uh, Sean Connery, and you will see Petra at the end of the movie. That's where that was filmed, okay? Um, it's a great place. It's very nice to see, and uh, if you never get a chance to go there, that's okay. Heaven will be a lot better. Okay, historians suppose that Caligula placed Damascus under Aretas as a gift to him. This unnamed governor under Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded with a garrison. This was done so that if Paul was located, he was to be arrested. In addition to this guard, Acts 9, 23, and 24 shows that Paul had other foes waiting for him as well. Let me go ahead and read those again so that we can keep that in the proper perspective. Acts 9, let's see here, uh, where am I? 9, and then we got to go to 23. I may have read it already. Um, yes, uh, now after many days were past, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Okay, so I did read that to you already. Um, Paul was hemmed in, and any chance of getting out of the city in a normal way was considered impossible. Therefore, other means had to be employed to get him out. This is detailed in the next verse and shows why he chose to name this under his list of infirmities. We're going to learn the reason in just a minute. 
life application. If you are hemmed in from all sides, and if the Lord still has purposes for you in this life, he will get you out of that situation. Never fear that he has every circumstance in our lives completely within his capable hands. Two things about that life application. The term capable hands comes from a friend of mine who prays all the time down in the projects, and he always says the Lord has it in his capable hands. That's Tom Alley. And the second thing about that is another person that's in the projects every week with us, and she, yes, Chris, always says, don't have a spirit of fear. And she's not talking about some goofy thing that people would say in a charismatic church. She's saying that don't have a spirit of fear, meaning don't be fearful, because the Lord has all of your days numbered. There is nothing that is surprising him, and if you're going to die tomorrow, having a spirit of fear is not going to change it in any way, shape, or form. Nothing is going to thwart your life continuing if the Lord wants you to continue. He knew before you were born that it would. So don't have a spirit of fear. Don't pull on your face and worry about what's going to happen tomorrow because it doesn't really make any difference. It makes zero difference. Now, one thing I do, and it has nothing to do with the church because I never tell anybody that I'm in the church twice a year. I post something there that is about the church, one, not the church, but about Jesus as I post a cross. But every day of my life, I take a picture of the sunrise. Okay. I walk out. I've done it for about 15 years. I do it every single day. And I've got a separate group on Facebook where I don't tell people I'm a preacher and they don't know anything about me, but they all know my name is Charlie. But they, uh, uh, over the past, you know, every day about 15 people will comment. And if something is really a great photo, there might be 30 comments, whatever. But you, you got these people that just go there and they look at this photo every day. In the past month, I knew that people were struggling. We got this, this COVID-19. And these people, a lot of them aren't Christians. They are just, they're scared to death of what's being presented to them. So every single day I've tried to say something, it'll be okay. Don't worry. Life is going to be good and everything's going to work. And you can't believe the number of comments I've been getting lately. It's because people are so in need of that. Don't have a spirit of fear because if you do, then the world has nowhere to turn to. I'm talking to you as believers now. That's what I'm trying to say. And what Chris says is absolutely true. There is no reason to fear. If you are going to die tomorrow, you are going to die tomorrow, and you're not going to be able to affect that in any way, shape, or form. You've got a question. You've been using very calming Calming language. language. Oh, do you read that? Do you take a look at that? I didn't know that. You look at those photos? Yes. I had no idea. I didn't know they were from you. Oh, he didn't know I did that. I've oh, been doing stop. that for years but, and years. But, yeah, 15 years. And, <laughs> oh. And your comments in the last month have been very... I've tried to just, because I know that people are, and they're not Christians and they need something to cling on to. It's Siesta Key Sunrises. It's yeah. called Siesta Key Sunrises. I don't say, like I said, once a year at Easter, I take a cross and I put it out there and I get the sun behind it. And they know that I'm a Christian after that. And then I get a lot of hallelujahs and stuff. But the rest of the year, nobody talks about it. And, but boy, you wouldn't believe all the, oh, God is in control and all that kind of stuff lately. Unbelievable, the comments. You, you had one that was really cloudy, so you didn't even have a... Yes. Well, today, you see, today, all I did was took a screenshot of the, the radar right. because all we had was rain. It was just rain everywhere. So I said, I'm sorry, you get no photo. But, and I said something calming because I don't want them to panic, you know, but they will eventually email. Somebody will say, you know, why are you always so happy? And I say, there are days, this is my answer. We're not going to get to verse 33 because we don't have time. But um, uh, there are days where I am in such a bad mood. The last thing I want to do is go out and take a sunrise photo. She knows. I'll be in such a bad, I'll be just so tired or something. I, the dog will do something. Oh, something will happen. I'll be so 
so beside myself that I don't want to go out there and do it. But I'll go out and take the photo anyway. And then I'll post it there on Siesta Key Sunrises and Sunsets. And I have to force myself to say something nice. And I do it every single day. I'll say, oh, isn't it beautiful out today? And look at the sun and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I tell you what, that helps me. But when you've got a spirit of down or a spirit of fear, you're, you're only going to pass that on to other people. So don't do that. Um, we better stop there because I talk too much about sunrise shows, but it's a perfect place to do it because what Paul said pertains perfectly to what Tom does at the projects and what Chris does at the project. So there you go. Um, we'll go ahead and close. I've got to give, uh, get rid of this here. I'm going to put this over here and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the wonderful blessings that you blessed us with. Thank you for your hand upon us, and thank you that our days are numbered, so we don't have to worry about our days. Whatever they are, they're going to be, and if uh, we have to be like somebody that's presented in the voice of the martyr someday and, uh, you know, die a very painful or agonizing death, may it be so. We've got a better hope than this world, and whatever happens is only going to happen temporarily, and then it's going to be behind us. And we've got all of eternity to face you and to feel the joy of knowing that we shared in your sufferings and what an honor that would be so far we haven't had to do it most of us but uh if we do help us to be responsible as christians to be faithful to you and to not break under the pressure of this world may it be to your glory and may it be so in jesus name amen, amen. all right let's go ahead and uh, with this thing over here